Our third scripture, more, scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Well, chapter 9. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind? This man or his parents? Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. The man's neighbors and those who used to see him when he was a beggar said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is. And others said, No, it's someone who looks like him. But the man said, Yes, it's me. So they asked him, How are you now able to see? He answered, The man they call Jesus made mud, smeared it on my eyes, and said, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. They asked, Where is this man? He replied, I don't know. Then they led the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus made the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes on a Sabbath day. So Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. The man told them, He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Some Pharisees said, This man isn't from God because he breaks the Sabbath law. Others said, How can a sinner do miraculous signs like these? So they were divided. Some of the Pharisees questioned the man who had been born blind again. What do you have to say about him, since he healed your eyes? He replied, he's a prophet. The Jewish leaders didn't believe the man had been blind and received his sight until they called for his parents. The Jewish leaders asked them, is this your son? Are you saying he was born blind? How can he now see? His parents answered, we know he is our son, we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who healed his eyes. Ask him, he's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they feared the Jewish authorities. This is because the Jewish authorities had already decided that whoever confessed Jesus to be the Christ would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's old enough ask him. Therefore they called a second time for the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The man answered, I don't know whether he's a sinner. Here's what I do know. I was blind and now I see. They questioned him, What did he do to you? How did he heal your eyes? He replied, I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you want to become his disciples too? They insulted him. You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this man is from. The man answered, This is incredible. You don't know where he is from, yet he healed my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to anyone who is devout and does God's will. No one has ever heard of a healing of the eyes of someone born blind. If this man wasn't from God, he couldn't do this. They responded, You were born completely in sin. How is it that you dare to teach us? Then they expelled him. Jesus heard they had expelled the man born blind. Finding him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the human one? He answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. Jesus said, I have come into the world to exercise judgment so that those who don't see can see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard what he said and asked, Surely we aren't blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we reflect upon it this morning, your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Of the four gospel accounts, I will confess that John is the one that I find the most difficult to approach. Mark and Matthew are essentially collections of teachings wrapped up in a narrative. Luke is a more historical and socioeconomic look at the gospel movement. But John is centered on wondrous signs. And the thing about signs is that they point beyond themselves. They require us to get behind what we are seeing to understand the true reality of the thing. In Zen Buddhism, there's a way of describing this phenomenon by saying that the teachings of Buddhism are like a finger pointing at the moon. The finger is useful in that it causes us to look at what we're supposed to see, but it's not useful to study the finger itself. In many ways, this is helpful for us when we think about the symbolic images of Scripture. They're not pointing us to the action itself, but to a larger point. So in today's story, the point is not simply about Jesus spitting in some dirt to make mud so that he could heal a blind man. Instead, what it might be about is Jesus dismantling the systems that isolated this man from his community. The first question we hear this morning is, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because that was the only way that the disciples could understand why he had been born blind. 
It's a sort of victim blaming that says someone must be to blame for the hardship in this man's life. So why not blame him? And so Jesus, without being asked, lifts the man out of the condition that he's in. Now the people of the town refuse to accept that this man has been liberated from his blindness. And so they bring him to the Pharisees for a ruling about how this man could be healed on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are split. Can Jesus actually represent God if he doesn't follow the rules? Or could he be anything but a representative of God if he's able to work such miracles? So they drag the man's parents into it. And his parents only answer as much as they have to because they don't want to risk upsetting their place in the community. It's essentially the ancient Near East version of knowing that snitches get stitches. As the story draws to a close, the Pharisees continue to interrogate the man who simply speaks the truth. He was blind, and now he sees. God listens to those who do his will, and Jesus had the God-given power to heal him. This answer enrages the Pharisees, so they dismiss the man as being entirely sinful, rather than consider that it might be their rules that are wrong. When Jesus then tells the man that he was healed by the Son of Man, that is to say the promised Savior, the Pharisees finally start to doubt their own self-righteousness. But this isn't just a story about healing an individual. It isn't just a story about a single person being self-righteous. It's a story about Jesus bringing liberation into a system of oppression. It's a story about Jesus blowing up the rules for what a good person looks like. It's a story about Jesus revealing God's judgment upon the way that this community treats its most vulnerable members. So today, I want us to think about what this has looked like historically and what it looks like today. John Newton is famous for writing our closing hymn this morning, Amazing Grace. That hymn may be one of the most well-known articulations of what it is like to be brought into a new life through faith. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. And it's often stated that this hymn was written as an act of repentance for his participation in the slave trade, that this new sight is about realizing the error of his ways. The truth, as is often the case, is more complicated than this. Newton did participate in the slave trade, and he did come to regret his activities, but not until much later in life. You see, John Newton had lived quite the life. As a young man, he was pressed into service in the Royal Navy, but he proved himself to be a rather insubordinate sailor, and so was transferred to be crew on a slave ship. Again, his difficult nature made him an unreliable crewman, and so he fled to Africa 
where he was, in effect, sold into slave labor himself. He eventually regained his freedom and found himself back in the crew of a ship. In the year 1750, Newton's ship was caught in a terrible storm that caused him to cry out for God's mercy. According to some, this marked the moments of Newton's conversion. But in that same year, Newton became commander of a slave ship. He commanded that ship on three different journeys to Africa. Therefore, Newton himself acknowledged that in that time, he was not yet a Christian in the full sense of the word. Eventually, his health prevented him from commanding a ship, and he returned to England where he became more involved in the church. At the urging of some friends, he sought permission to become a priest, but was denied in 1758 because he had no university degree and because he had the dangerous tendency to associate with those over-enthusiastic believers called Methodists. By 1764, he'd been made the curate of the church in Olney, and in 1773, he led his congregation in the first singing of Amazing Grace. By the late 1770s, he'd become an ally of William Wilberforce and encouraged him to maintain his career for the sake of the abolition movement. Wilberforce would become one of the leading figures to bring about the end of slavery in the British Empire. However, it wasn't until the late 1780s that Newton broke his own public silence on the horrors of the slave trade. Some 30 years after he had experienced what some called his conversion. In the introduction to a pamphlet titled Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, Newton writes, if my testimony should not be necessary or serviceable, yet perhaps I am bound in conscience to take shame to myself by a public confession, which however sincere comes too late to prevent or repair the misery and mischief to which I have formerly been accessory. He goes on to describe the treatment of the slaves under his watch how they were chained together so that they couldn't move without pain for months at a time, how they were whipped and tortured by thumbscrews to prevent insurrection, how he knows of a sailor who tossed an infant into the sea to stop its crying. As awful as each of these instances is on their own, as terribly as they reflect on the cruelty of the individual, Newton knows that the larger problem is the moral breakdown that such a trade worked upon the society as a whole. This is why, as a minister of the gospel, Newton finally felt the need to speak out about the injustice of the slave trade. He says that it's not merely a political matter, but a matter of righteousness. Specifically, what he says is this, only thus far my character as a minister will allow, and perhaps require me, to observe that the best human policy 
is that which is connected with a reverential regard to Almighty God, the supreme governor of the earth. Every plan which aims at the welfare of the nation, in defiance of his authority and laws, however, however apparently wise, will prove to be essentially defective, and if persisted in, ruinous. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness, and he has engaged to plead the cause and vindicate the wrongs of the oppressed. It is righteousness that exalteth a nation, and wickedness is the present reproach, and will, sooner or later, unless repentance intervene, prove the ruin of any people. In other words, a nation is only acting in accord with the will of God's righteousness insofar as the nation hears the cry of the needy and cares for the oppressed. He goes on to say, the slave trade was always unjustifiable, but inattention and interest prevented, for a time, the evil being perceived. It is otherwise at present, the mischiefs and evils connected with it have been of late years represented with such undeniable evidence and are now so generally known that I suppose there is hardly an objection that can be made to the wish of thousands, perhaps millions, for the suppression of this trade, but upon the ground of political expedience. Or again, in modern English, the slave trade was never justifiable, but people were unwilling to see what was before them. Even when the evidence of its monstrosity was brought to light, the thing that kept it from being changed was the political gain that it brought to those in power. Which brings me to our present situation. One of the challenges for faith leaders in this time is to figure out how to do good theology in interpreting the signs of our times. There have been plenty of takes on what the spread of COVID-19 should mean to us as people of faith. I've heard everything from this disease being one of the riders of the apocalypse, to this being especially fitting for Lent as we find out what is truly essential in our life. I think we have been prepared to make sense of this by our study this year of the Minor Prophets. One of the things that any of the prophets do is try to open the eyes of the people as to how God is at work around them. In Hosea, we saw stark judgments oscillate with God's redeeming love. We saw that the rulers and the priests amassed wealth and power for themselves while the poor starved. In Joel, we saw the prophet interpret a plague of locusts as judgment for the sins of the society. Joel forced us to confront the fact of our interconnectedness. Most recently in Amos, we have seen that injustice and idolatry go hand in hand with one another. That to allow injustice in society is to be idolatrous and to turn away from God. And so, I offer to you this morning that the coronavirus is revealing to us a judgment upon our society. 
We've been too in love with the myth of individualism. We've neglected the deep connections that bind us together. But when a disease like the coronavirus starts to spread, we're forced to open our eyes to our dependence upon one another. On the one hand, we're made to see just how used to community we are because the call for isolation completely upends the routines to which we have become accustomed. On the other hand, we're also forced to confront the deeper realities of our communal life, to see how dependent we are on low-wage employees who prepare our food, who sell us our basic necessities, who provide transportation, who teach our children, who do, in other words, all the things that make life livable. And we see how what each of us does in our life affects the life of another person. Think of the people who rushed out to supply themselves with toilet paper or hand sanitizer but left the shelves empty for others. And if you haven't seen some of the more extreme examples, know that there are people who bought up pallets of these things from places like Costco so that they could then resell them for a profit. Or think of the people who have bought out medical face masks to try and protect themselves so that now hospitals are having to ration their own supplies. Or think of the people like some of my friends who have decided that they're young and healthy enough that they don't have to worry, but have no regard for those in their lives who they endanger with their attitudes, who have no concern for the fact that if this disease spreads as it has in other countries, there will not be enough ventilators to keep everyone alive. If the gospel calls us to love our neighbors like ourselves, these are just some of the ways that our culture has taught us to love ourselves first and worry about our neighbors later. And since we're talking about communal liberation, let us be clear that the way that God's judgment is being revealed is not just in these local ways. I read a news story on Friday about a family in New Jersey who's lost four members of their family with another three in the hospital. And now 19 members of their family are self-isolating but unable to be tested. My heart broke as I read the account of one family member who said, my mom is one of 11. Last Thursday I went to sleep having 10 aunts and uncles Friday, I woke up and found out I only had nine. Just a few moments ago, I found out I only have eight. One of the members in the family asked, why don't the family members who are not hospitalized have test results? Why should athletes and celebrities without symptoms be given priority over a family that has been decimated by this virus? Their story may be particularly tragic, but their experience is not unique. I've seen the stories of chaplains who work with at-risk populations, unable to get tested after interacting with people who've experienced symptoms of the virus. 
I've heard of others who've been at gatherings where attendees have ended up hospitalized, but are then unable to get tested themselves. Meanwhile, it seems that those with the right connections, and more importantly, the right money, are able to find out without difficulty whether or not they are sick. As in Hosea, we see that the rich and powerful do as they please, while the rest of us suffer. In fact, it's been revealed that several senators used their knowledge of the situation to engage in insider trading so that they could make a profit off of this illness. We have no option other than to open our eyes to the idolatry of money and power in this country, an idolatry that has caused injustice to take root in every aspect of our lives. Just a day before the bishop announced the suspension of in-person gatherings, we sat in the church and read the book of Amos. As we read the words of the ancient prophet, we discussed the looming dangers of the coronavirus. How school closures would mean the loss of food for too many of our children. How layoffs would mean the loss of health care for many during the time when they will need it the most. How the loss of income would put many in danger of losing their place of residence. And we could all agree that these are not mere political issues. These are the morally shameful realities of our present system. Just as with the slave trade, these realities were never justifiable, but they have for years been ignored because it was not politically expedient to care for the working poor. So let us open our eyes. Let us admit that we have been lost, but now we are found. Let us know that out of the ashes of disaster, the promise of redemption awaits. As we approach Easter, let us take comfort in the promise of the resurrection. Let us know that we have the opportunity as a society to resurrect, to come out of this extraordinary season of anxiety and uncertainty and to build something better. We are being given the chance to cast off the idols of money and power and selfishness so that we might return to the Lord in all his righteousness, who pleads the cause of the poor and vindicates the oppressed. Only when we practice justice, when we build the kingdom of God, when we tear down the systems of oppression, are we walking in accord with the will of the Lord our God. So go and be the transformation that our society so dearly needs. Amen. Please pray with me. Supreme Governor of the Earth, you hear those who do your will. Transform us and transform our society so that we might better reflect your will. Teach us to care for the poor, to bring healing to the sick, and to protect the vulnerable. Amen. <laughs>